uh, the colonial powers, they assumed that we were in cahoots with this guy to create a revolution using the psychedelics. Welcome to the Greener Grass podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Before the hippies, it was the beatniks and jazz musicians who experimented with strange, mind-altering substances. Those were the cats who inspired Gunther Weil. Gunther escaped the Holocaust as a child. He helped Timothy Leary at the Concord Prison Experiments work with LSD and convicted felons. He was deported for associating with political rebels in the old British colonies, and he helped record Aerosmith's first album. He's seen it all, and these stories are fascinating as they are important. Strap in for the adventure with this cheerful tripper, Dr. Gunther Weil. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I'm very happy to be here with Gunther Vile. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Before the story really gets exciting when you get to Cambridge in 1960, can you tell me about where it was that you grew up and what it was that you thought you were going to do when you were a youngster? I came to with my parents in this country in 39 as a, uh, as a Holocaust escapee, you know, a fan, refugee, essentially. Uh, we emigrated on, on what was, if not the last boat, certainly one of the last boats. So my early childhood, which I've explored in some psychedelic experiences and some of those experiences which were actually pre-verbal, were very formative, you know, in, 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 in my own psychological conditioning uh, over many years. Um, and um, so I grew up in Milwaukee uh, and uh, I attended Kenyon College in Ohio when it was a small men's college or 500 guys. Uh, uh, very good liberal arts background with a, also a strong party school. <laughs> the women came in on the weekends, you know, or we went to a couple of, of uh, female colleges in the vicinity, you know, or whatever. So, but I had a, a great education, and then I uh, I was uh, uh, given a, a Fulbright fellowship to go live in Europe for a year in Norway. I was. There was a philosopher there who was working on psychological research. He was combining philosophy and psychology, and I had a dual major at Kenyon in that. So I went to work with him. And I ended up spending a lot of time in Paris and uh, <laughs> playing hooky from uh, Oslo, which at that time was coming out of being a kind of a little bit of a third world country before they discovered oil in the North Sea. So it was a very, you know, it was beautiful there, wonderful people, but it was a little boring. So, of course, I gravitated to Paris. And my background earlier than that, I had fallen in love with bebop and jazz. And, you know, my, uh, I come from a different era. I come from the, uh, the beatnik area, era, not, not the hippie era, you know. So my reference points were Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, who I then met later with Tim, and, you know, and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of people from, from the Bay Area, from San Francisco in particular, and internationally. So I uh, had an interesting background, and when I, when I arrived at Harvard after the year in, 
in Oslo, uh, I was uh, I went to meet my uh, faculty advisor, who happened to be Timothy Leary. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know anything about him. And uh, we met in a uh, in a uh, the Center for Research in Personality, which was on had an auspicious address. It was Five Divinity Avenue. <laughs> in, uh, in Cambridge, you know, it's a colonial house, you know. And uh, I walked in the door, and I was looking for his office. I was expecting, you know, you know, a normal office. Well, turns out he, because there was a space space shortage, he had been delegated to a uh, a former utility closet on the first floor, and he kind of had a little desk there. It was a very small space, but he was very engaging, and and uh, but he made it clear from the very beginning that uh, his research focus had shifted in the previous year. I, you know, if you know his background, but he, he, had, he was very well known in the field of psychological testing and theory of personality. His, his test, actually, multidimensional personality test, was later administered to him in, when he was in prison, actually, years later. That's like a footnote on some of the history. So he, uh, he was very clever and very ahead of his time in terms of that particular diagnostic uh, but he made it clear to me that he was no longer assuming that that was what maybe why I would be interested in working with him. But he dissuaded me of that quickly and said that the previous summer he had been in Cuernavaca. He had taken the mushrooms uh, with a, uh, along with a few other people. Frank Barron, who was this good friend of his from the University of California, played a, also a significant role early in, in, in our research around creativity. Uh, so uh, he said to me, this is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in consciousness. I'm interested in, in the use of psychoactive substances. Uh, if you're interested in that, I'd be delighted to have you as my graduate student. If not, you're, you're better off finding somebody right away. I said, sign me up. So, uh, because my background, as I said earlier, I had been involved with Bebop I, in Paris, where I hung out when, during my, my uh, Fulbright. I got to know a lot of amazing artists, Bud Powell and, and uh, you know, people, Oscar Pettiford and the great bebop jazz players from that era, a lot of whom were expats. And uh, there was a big expat community in Paris there in literary and jazz and, you know, the whole scene. And I, I stayed for a few months in a small hotel on Rue Saint-Germain, where there were like three jazz clubs on that street, right on the left bank. Up the street was was Sartre's Cafe, where he would hang out, you know. And so it was a really interesting time, and I was like, you know, in my 20s and like really into it, you know. So I said, sign me up, you know, because I had, had already had experience smoking marijuana with jazz musicians when I was in my late teens in Milwaukee and Chicago, you know, when I would go to hear people play. I heard Miles and Coltrane in, in Chicago early on, and, you know, it was a whole different scene then. Even the, even the racial issues were, they were always there, but for a, a young white guy to go into the black, a black neighborhood to hear bebop was pretty unusual, but it was so unusual that people were just kind of protective and friendly and, and you know, and almost kind of amazed that, that someone like you know, my skin color and background would you know, go to them, right, to hear those guys play. So, so I said, of course, yeah, sign me up. So, so within the first two weeks of my graduate program, I had my first psilocybin experience with Tim, and I got married. 
all of that happened in the first two weeks of, you know, of graduate school. Um, so the first experience with Tim was at his home in Newton. He lived, uh, he had rented a big old house in Newton, Mass. As you know, Newton is a wealthy suburb of Boston and a lot of old, old big mansions there. And he had rented one of those. And Frank Barron, who was on a sabbatical from the University of California, Berkeley, was living with Tim. And there was an initial session with uh, a lot of interesting people. Uh, the, uh, there was a black psychiatrist who was gay, who was uh, the chief psychiatrist at Concord Prison, and who led a double life. He had this beautiful black wife, you know, beauty contest, who was his front, basically, you know, and he was a character and a half, and uh, he ended up because shortly after that, we started the prison project at Concord, which you've probably heard about, which I'm happy to talk about in, in this session today as well, and uh, a number of other people. And so, you know, my, my background in philosophy and psychology became embodied in a way I, I actually I went beyond the conceptual reality of, of those fields of knowledge, and I had my first experience of first out-of-body experience and my first experience of the kind of intense aesthetics of psych of specifically of psilocybin which you probably know is had among uh, multiple dimensions what i experienced a la also the mescaline you know question of mescaline is a very intense sensory aesthetic dimension to that particular but it was, it just blew me away and, and it was really positive and all of the philosophical and psychological and the beginning of spiritual themes that I was later to explore in much more depth became like alive for me in a way that I had never had before. So that was my first, you know, my first experience there with a, and then there were a number of other experiences and sessions. We were doing sessions, I would say almost weekly for three or four years while I was there. Uh, so it was with a you know, range of people coming in and out from Hollywood, from politics, from sciences, from all walks of life who were uh, drawn to, to our work, basically. And so there were a handful of us there, uh, Tim, and Tim primarily, and then, of course, Richard Alpert, now known as Ramdas for many years, and we're good friends. I, we see each other. Whenever I'm in Maui, we try to get there once a year and spend some time with him. And, uh, you know, we continue to trade stories. Last time I was there, actually, last year, uh, he was coming out of a physical therapy session where I was about to enter. We have a mutual friend there who was a wonderful uh, PT. And he caught my eye, looked at me, and it wasn't the first time that we would see each other in, in that context. And the first thing out of his mouth was he looked at me and said, I really missed him, <laughs> and it was so sweet, you know, it was so genuine, and, uh, and he's at a place now in consciousness which is, is really, uh, I would say, really refined and really present, really alive, you know, his, uh, his, his, his long, many-year desire uh, to become an embodied guru actually happened actually you know and he really he really became who he wanted to be for a lot of years and so he's very genuine and very extremely present and kind and loving and his mind is very alert and very clear 
he has a little difficulty sometimes expressing there's a gap between his ideation and his articulation uh, as a result of the stroke, you know, but, but it also gives him a, a certain weight also to his words because the words are, are crafted, they're, 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 uh, they're, they're presented in a way that have substance and weight and, you know, intention behind it. It's not just free associating on some trip, you know, or, or preempting what the next person is saying. It's a, it's a very, the quality of presence is very, very, very clear. So, uh, so it was Richard, at the, you know, I, I still occasionally call him by Richard because I know, I know him from that period, right? And Ralph Metzner, uh, another guy named George Litwin, uh, who ended up spending some years at the at the Harvard Business School after the psychedelic period. Uh, and then a lot of other people who were a little bit more on the periphery, but it was basically the kind of the core group of of uh, people that were uh, kind of driving this apocalypse <laughs> were Tim and Dick and Ralph and George and myself, basically, you know, so. Uh, I've lost touch with George. I, I think he's still living in, in the East Coast in the uh, south of Boston, uh, near, near Plymouth, in that area, I'm not sure. I see Ralph occasionally, uh, not that often, and I, I do see, uh, you know, Ramdas Richard uh, almost yearly when we, we take some time and go to Maui to get out of the cold. So that was, that was the beginning, basically, uh, being, Tim being my advisor, that meeting in the utility closet, which was his office, and then proceeded almost immediately within a week or two with my first psychedelic session, and then a then it went on until it stopped, you know, and we all know that story, and I'm happy to shed some color on that, too, if you're interested. Uh, well, to begin, I'd be curious, since you were such at the forefront before it was even in the public consciousness, what did your team learn about set and setting and these psychedelics in the early years of giving mm -hmm. sessions to all manner of people? That became clear at the very beginning, uh, and also for, it became clear experientially, and also, as, as we were studying reports of people that were doing research on, on what was then called psychotomimetic drugs, psychotomimetic, right? psychosis-mimicking drugs. So there was a psychiatrist in Boston uh, who was a, a German psychiatrist. He looked like a character out of a silent movie with a kind of, you know, not, what, used to, what do they used to call it? A monocle, you know, and very stiff, you know, and... and uh, and Wrinkle, Max Wrinkle, that was his name. And he was among another, a group of people, it turned out, were funded by the CIA to do this work on psychotomimetic drugs. And they would give uh, LSD to a, uh, a patient, patient, right? Even the word patient right, was, was used or, or, you know, or a volunteer experimenter or whatever, uh, in a, essentially in a hospital setting in a, a you know white room with fluorescent lighting with you know steel cots and uh, and you know white aprons and syringes and a lot of equipment and lo and behold they created psychosis because that's what they were looking for and the setting predisposed itself to a, a dissociation dissociation would would be like a uh, actually a creative escape from the you know, from the <laughs> from that scene, if you will, right? But they, they created a lot of suffering and a lot of, you know, psychosis-mimicking reactions and responses in people. 
Uh, and then, as I said, you know, we were aware of that because people would come to us when they began to discover that we were doing things in a different way. And we had started to read widely. We became very interested in the Curandero tradition and the, in the tradition of psychedelic use in many different cultures. So people like Gordon Wasson, you know, the banker, the retired banker who funded it, Schultes, who wrote a major book on, on the magic mushrooms, uh, and, and many other people, anthropologists and, and uh, healers and other people who had, we read, read stories about them, we read a lot of literature. Uh, we just, and then Tim really, in his own brilliance, uh, uh, arrived at this insight that, that the uh, setting in which the experience occurs and the set or the expectation that you have going into it constitutes about 95 or 99 percent of what happens. The, there's also a fact that has to do with the purity of the substance that you're taking, you're ingesting. Right? That, that's a small element compared to the, the power of the uh, expectation in the environment. And uh, so it became clear to us that, that, that in order to, for our own experiences and our own well-being and the well-being of the people who came to us to explore consciousness, that we needed to create that kind of setting. And we did that. We, you know, we, uh, we, would, we used a lot of Indian prints and incense and music and all the available you know, sensory tools, right? To, that all classic, all great ritual basically makes use of sensory impact, right? To create, uh, to create a, a uh, altered consciousness, right? Or an opening in consciousness, if you will. So the set and setting, which is now, you know, the kind of norm of the work that is being done by MAPS and other groups uh, in this renaissance that we're experiencing now, that's a given, you know, and just, uh, but early on, we uh, we rediscovered it. Redis I should say, we rediscovered something that's always been known, because in indigenous cultures, uh, you know, the use of these substances in indigenous cultures was always utilized in a in a uh, highly sacred and and meaningful and purposeful way. And you know, and so the, for the most part, we approached it that way. You know, and we had fun and games too along the way. But 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 for the most part, our intention was to to really research and discover. And so in the course of that, uh, we, uh, we did a lot of interesting projects. Um, we ended up uh, uh, in the f second year, uh, we made a, uh, an arrangement with the Department of Mental Health and the Corrections Department in Massachusetts to administer psilocybin to a group of inmates at Concord Prison, which was a maximum security prison. Uh, which at the time we were doing this was, I think, over 100 years old. It's, it's like a scene out of some horror, gothic horror movie, you know, this, this prison. Uh, I mean, you know, dark gray walls and, you know, and gigantic, you know, iron gates and clanging and sounds and, you know, those like, it was really like a, like a scene out of, out of the inferno, you know. So they would, so we made an arrangement with them and there's a, there's a history in, in criminology, basically in, in the prison work of, of convicts volunteering for drug experiments. And often these were life-threatening or, or potentially harmful because they're early stage experiments by pharmaceutical companies. They would get what they called in the vernacular time off, they would get time, good time basically, that was what it was called I believe. Yeah. They would get time off their sentence. 
So the administrators, you know, in, 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 in the uh, prison system and the part of mental health, they, they just put us in that box of being drug experimenters and they didn't know from psychedelics or, you know, as far as they were concerned, it was Harvard University. It's all they really needed. <laughs> and a few PhDs and the door was open. So we would drive there early in the morning. We'd get from Boston to Concord is about a 20-minute drive. Uh, from Cambridge to Boston is about 20, to, to Concord, about 20-minute drive. We'd get there at 8 in the morning They'd let us in through the initial gates, multiple gates, and we'd walk through this courtyard and to the back of the prison where there was a hospital ward. It was a room, oh, I would say maybe a, maybe a 1,200 square foot room, maybe a little larger, and with a lot of different cots. And, uh, and we did our best to kind of, you know, uh, bring in a few Indian prints and the incense, they didn't really want us to do the incense, so we couldn't do that. But we did the best we could to kind of dress it up a little bit, you know, given the context, physical context. And so, and then the, there would be a group of volunteers of cons who were volunteering. Most of them uh, had already a, uh, a, a release date. Uh, because oh, part of the rationale for the work we were doing was predicated on the idea that we would, we were attempting to see if we could lower the recidivism rate, which historically is around the mid 70s, 72 to 75 percent recidivism rate. Just as a footnote on that, it was it wasn't long before we were there before Tim realized and we realized that the prison system is like basically like graduate school. It's like we're, we're young criminals go to learn the craft, basically, and they're taught by older criminals. And it's just a repeating pattern, a self-fulfilling pattern, you know, and that to break that uh, uh, w was very challenging. You, you, the initial break would be through, uh, through the psychedelic, you know, understanding, if you will. Uh, and so these were cons, I said, who had release dates. There were generally about 10 or 12 in the room. Uh, half would get a placebo, half would get, you know, psilocybin. Tim or I or Ralph, and we would alternate. One, one section would be Ralph and Tim, and next one would be Tim and I. Occasionally, Ralph and I would do it together. Uh, and one of us would take psilocybin, the other would take a placebo. And, and uh, of course, we were pretty good navigators at that point. We knew pretty quickly what was going on. And, uh, and we'd proceed for the next seven, eight hours, locked in this back ward of a prison with these tough guys who, you know, had, oh, had been sentenced for a variety of, of you know, <laughs> of issues and violations and crimes. And we had a lot of really powerful experiences with these guys. So one of the first things that happened was the distinction between doctor and patient disappeared. Like, so the, the doctor-patient game, you know, like it you know, didn't have, couldn't sustain itself in that, right, <laughs> in that setting. So, so Tim was like right away, you know, pointing that out to everybody, and everybody kind of chuckled about that. And, and, and again, the set and setting, you know, given the really horrific lives a lot of these men had lived, uh, the psychological conditioning, the wounding, the trauma, it was amazing some of the, the, the psychic breakthroughs that we had, you know, of tears and laughter and hugs. And, and it was just amazing that uh, people came to terms with their, 
with their lives, basically, you know, with a degree of compassion and understanding. And there were like some bad trips too. I had a bad trip there. I had like one trip there where I, um, I was speaking uh, at one point. I, I, I got a little, I got on a little bit of a, of a you know, of a, what am I trying to say here? A, a little bit of a run, you know, I, I, I felt empowered and I was, I was kind of preaching. And, uh, and I saw, like, I was looking out through my eyes and I saw I had, I had an audience of these, you know, Ralph was kind of looking, looking at me a little bit strange and these, these guys were just, I, I had captured them hypnotically, basically, in terms of my, you know, ideation and my communication. And, and that went deeper and deeper. And I was kind of fascinated by the power that I was channeling there. And then suddenly what came in was this, this understanding that I, was, that I was basically manipulating them. That's the take I had. And, and, I, uh, and I, I felt this tremendous shame and, and, and feeling of, of, of what am I doing here? You know, uh, I felt really badly that I had, that had caught in that identity and and I collapsed kind of uh, you know I, I swooned and I, I went unconscious and uh, the next thing I know I'm laying on a cot on one of the cots I can see it now as I'm speaking I'm laying on the cot and I see these uh, you know faces above me looking at me with with concern and with love and with attention <laughs> And these, these are the cons, right, who I'm supposed to be. And, and the complete role reversal, I'm laying there like, you know, needing their help. And they're assuring me that everything's be okay and with a lot of loving presence, you know. Uh, so that was one example. You know, there was another example one day when I was working with, uh, uh, with a guy named Jimmy Kerrigan. And uh, he and his brother were Irish... Mafia. They had been in jail most of their life from their early 20s. He was in his late 40s at that point. Gnarly, tough, Irish, you know, hitman. And, you know, and these, these guys had done everything. And um, so I, I was working with him. He was on a cot laying down, and I was attempting to be a guide for him. And he was almost catatonic, you know. He was, like, very stiff. He would occasionally glance at me out of the corner of his eye, it was like a, with a lot of fear and, and aggression. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was, you know, I was just let him alone. So I sat there trying to hold his hand. He wouldn't, you know, it was really tough. So I, I was completely mystified and I didn't feel good about it. But so two weeks later, we would come back and we would do a debriefing. Inter, we did intermittent debriefings between the sessions. And at that point, he was back. He had clarity, and he was he was back and embodied. And he shared with me that he had fallen into a paranoid trance, where he believed that we were actually manipulating them using a, a form of truth serum, that the psychedelics was like a form of truth serum to discover all the crimes that he had committed he had never been arrested for, and he was planning to have me killed. He was, he was scheming in that moment there, in that, those moments laying on the cot, how to have me executed <laughs> by his buddies on the outside so there would be no trace of Gunther Weil, you know, and no reporting of, uh, you know. And we both laughed about that because it was so insane. So, you know, I, we both found it, in, in, you know, it's hard to believe, but we both found it 
like, like I kind of found a dark humor in that, you know. So fast forward years later, I'm uh, I have a faculty appointment at the University of Massachusetts Boston, and an administrative appointment, and uh, it's late in the afternoon, and I I get a call, and it's Jimmy Kerrigan, and. He said, Gunther, I'm out. I'm on, you know, I'm on probation. Uh, I'd like to come and talk to you. I said, great, Jimmy, uh, you know, how about, I'm pretty busy till early this evening, how about coming by then? And he said, great. So he shows up in my office at the university and he walks in and we begin talking and he tells me he's just violated parole and he's on the lam and he's gonna be leaving the state and, and I'll never see him again. And that that his his career as a criminal probably wouldn't change. It would no longer be violent. He would no longer commit any violent crimes. But that basically that was his karma, his path. That was his destiny. And he thanked me for the work that we did together at at the, at the prison project a few years earlier, a number of years earlier. And we embraced. And he left, and I never heard from him again. But it was that kind of relationship with another human being that went beyond the, you know, the title, the name, the status, the bank account. The, it was just a human-to-human -human connection, you know, at a fundamental level with no judgment about each other at all. It was just just a lot of love, basically. You know? so, so there were a lot of experiences. Ralph and Tim and I, we had a lot of experiences along those lines with those guys. And, and actually, uh, uh, my uh, f friend uh, Bruce Poulter, who's about to speak, uh, uh, we were reminiscing a little bit about that not long ago because uh, the, uh, the, the founder of MAPS, Rick Doblin, was a graduate student at that time, I believe at BU, and he, we met because he wanted to do a follow-up study on the Concord Prison Project. And uh, for those listeners who are listening to this podcast, if you do a Google search on the Concord Prison Project, you'll find stuff on Wikipedia on that. But Rick did a, an initial uh, master's thesis or a paper on that, and that's how we met. And we convened a meeting of the cons that were, the ex-cons that were still living that we could find at Tim's house in Beverly Hills. Uh, and we had about seven or eight people quite a few years later and traded some stories about that whole epoch. And, and Rick helped organize that. So. Gunther, could you talk about the, this idea of truth serum? Because there is reality in that, right? Yes, yes. But it, it isn't the kind of, I forgot that the, uh, you may know, like the biochemist, the, the technical name of truth serum, the, the, the substance they use. Uh, that that has a, a completely different set of receptor sites and reactions than this. Certainly the psychedelics are a truth serum, but in a different me sense of the word truth, it's like it's like experiencing not the not the truth or falsity of an event, right, say, or but the the relative truth or congruence or falsity uh, of of one's experience, right, one's life. Right, and that so it has a. I'm using. I'm reframing the the word truth here in the context that we're speaking now. You know, is it? It's not about whether I committed this event or not, or if I have a memory of that's re being triggered of that event. That can happen. And it can be a traumatic recall. It often does. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a, a very different set and setting that 
that is operating here. It's not like some investigator trying to extract something from me. Right? So. And sodium pentothal. Pentothal, that's right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, is what they traditionally think of. But a lot of this work using psychedelics as the truth theorem was being done during World War II and in the 50s already. Mm-hmm. There was a lot um, about using these psychedelics like that. And through the course of this, I was curious what it was like for your team to realize that there was more and more federal research going on at a dark level, using these things We didn't wrong. really know at that time. Uh, and I didn't really discover that until quite a few years, late, years later. Even, I mean, even the work being done uh, on the psychotomimetic, we, I had no idea. I can only speak personally. I had no idea that there was CAA backing. All that stuff came out later, the MK Ultra experiments, all of that quite a few years later. And then and Tim was somewhat implicated in that, according to some people. Uh, but I, again, I had no knowledge of that. We were, we were just kind of uh, blazing trails, basically. We, we were, we were going to change the world through psychedelics. <laughs> and uh, through that, and the, uh, <laughs> the, the Concord project came up as one, just one among many different things we did you know uh, every week people would come in from all over the world uh, uh, Arthur Kessler a famous author from that period who was had written a lot about creativity he came in did a session with Tim had a bad trip and left with a with a very negative view of, of, of Tim and the psychedelics you know he had a really just had a really bad trip <laughs> and we had politicians we had uh, I mean, and, you know, people from the entertainment industry and musicians. Uh, years later, when uh, Tim and Dick were living in Millbrook, New York, under the auspices of the Hitchcock family, the Peggy Hitchcock and her two brothers, which were part of the uh, Mellon family and the American very wealthy dynastic family, uh, Peggy uh, and met Tim and and uh and richard in new york uh we we spent a lot of time we were living in cambridge boston but we spent a lot of time in new york city she was very connected into the new york social scene and into into the arts into music was very close with miles davis with charlie mingus dizzy gillespie and those people and so a lot of those people came to do to millbrook to do uh, psychedelics with us and i got to know a number of them I had a couple of experiences with Charlie Mingus, which were really interesting, you know, and uh, we, we just had a really nice connection, you know, a real human connection. So one night, uh, uh, I, was, I had been living in Millbrook. I, I, I was given a teaching position by Abe Maslow at Brandeis uh, in 1965. I, I barely got out of Harvard because there was the, you know, the gates closed, right? And Tim got fired, and Dick got fired, Tim got fired. Uh, you know, the faculty were in an uproar. There's a whole story here about Andrew Weil, my namesake, you know, which if you're interested, I'll give you. That became public in recent years, his role in that, and I can share a couple of insights about that. But uh, so there was a closing of those gates, and, and I had a couple of protectors there, a faculty, senior faculty who who knew me, who trusted me, and one of whom actually knew my father in Germany, who was helped get my father out of Germany uh, uh, because he had he had read some of my father's research in German, 
on, on, on synesthesia. My father was an expert on synesthesia, which is, you know, hearing, <coughs> hearing, uh, seeing sounds and, 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 and hearing colors and, you know, that kind of thing, where you cross modality of sensors. And my father was an early student and researcher in that area, had no experiences with psychedelics at all, you know, was just interested in that. My father had a lot of artistic leanings. He was a violinist and a pianist, and he had a PhD in psychology and master's degree in chemistry, physics, and math also. He was a very interesting man, my dad. And so his early writings uh, came to the attention of Gordon Allport, who was a senior psychologist at Harvard, was a leader in the field of, of studying prejudice, and, had, and was a Quaker. And he, he helped get us out of Germany by getting my father a teaching position at a small Quaker college in, in, uh, in Nebraska, where we first, when we first left Nazi Germany, that we arrived in New York, we moved right out to Nebraska to the Plains. And that was, you know, my earliest memories. I was two and a half years old. We were about from that period. So he helped kind of ensure that I could get out with a PhD. Otherwise, I would have been, you know, excommunicated. So he helped because he was very senior. He was tenured. He was he was internationally known, and also another psychologist there, uh, uh, who uh, had been a student of Jung, had been analyzed by Jung, uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember his name now. He's very famous. He he invented the TAT, you know, the uh, thematic apperception test. Uh, he's there's a park in New York City named after him and his family. Uh, and he wrote a book on, on Moby Dick, a psychoanalytic study of Moby Dick. Uh, I'll come up with his name before it. <laughs> hey! <laughs> so, uh, and he had taken psychedelics with Tim, actually. And I actually interned with him the summer I arrived before the fall that I started at Harvard before I met Tim that first week. I had actually studied with, with this gentleman who's, again, I'm just, I'll try to remember for the end of this interview. Um, so I, I was able to get out with a PhD and, and, and resume my life, or start a life, basically. And Abe Maslow gave me my first teaching position at Brandeis because he, had, he was at that point focused on the, the study of peak experiences. And we were, of course, in the business of creating peak experiences. So he uh, was fascinated. He was like a moth to the flame with us. You know, he was kind of entering, you know, it scared him, but he was also intrigued. So, so he and I met a number of times. I had dinner with him, with his, with his wife Bertha and his daughter. It was a little girl at that point. She lived in Boulder, apparently, for years. Uh, and she died quite a number of years ago, uh, his eldest daughter. And he offered me a teaching position, and he, he expended a fair amount of political capital in, in, with his colleagues in doing so. Was, people don't realize that Abe Basna was not considered, you know, uh, a hero, so to speak, at that time within his own department. He was ahead of his time, like most prophetic people are. And it was a department of psychology that was dominated by psychoanalysts on the one hand and cognitive psychologists on the other. And he was somewhere in the middle doing humanistic self-actualization work. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, neither, neither of those two groups who hated each other, they equally disliked him. And so... Although he was head of the department at that time, so as I said a moment ago, he expended some political capital in getting me there. And uh, in, in the course of teaching that year, I, I realized I really wasn't, didn't really want to be there, you know. And my parents were very chagrined because I, you know, 
being a nice Jewish intellectual family, they were like thrilled that I was given a teaching position at the first Jewish university in the country, you know, and uh, which by the way, there's a backstory here is that Dick Alpert's father was a benefactor and a contributor to Brandeis. Actually, he was one of the, on, sat on the board of directors of Brandeis. He was very eminent. He owned the uh, railroad, basically, uh, you know, the, I've forgotten which railroad, but so Richard grew up, he, he talks a lot that he's referred to that often having his, his own, his father had his own railroad car, you know, basically. <laughs> so, so, because Richard grew up with that kind of wealth. He had an airplane, a small single engine airplane. He had collected antiques. He was driving one of the early Mercedes. He was living the, you know, gay bachelor's life in, in Cambridge uh, to the hilt. And, and then when he met this madcap Irishman, his world completely turned upside down, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, was, uh, it was funny. So it was, you know, this was the group of people. And, and uh, I, uh, I, t I realized early at, in my career at Brandeis that I really wanted to be with Tim and Dick. And meanwhile, I had, had moved to Millbrook, New York under the auspices and the, the uh, support, the patronage of the uh, Hitchcock family, the Mellon family, on this 30,000-acre estate in Millbrook, New York that had been built by the... Uh, a man by the name of Diedrich, I believe, who brought the gas lamp to New York, and it was a multimillionaire of his era. And he recreated this Italian villa and this enormous, you know, the expansive and spacious uh, and very luxurious estate. So we were ensconced in, in, in one of the large homes on the estate. There were like about 40 rooms, and, uh, and that's where they were holding forth when they got kicked out. I hung around for another year to finish my degree, as I said earlier, under difficult circumstances, but protected. So, and then when Abe gave me that teaching offer, I took it. But midway into the year, I realized that, you know, I actually want to be with these other guys in Millbrook. Mm -hmm. So I stayed for the year. I resigned my position, and Abe was very chagrined and unhappy. That, and my parents, you can imagine, you know, were, were like distraught. But they were, as always, they were supportive at the end. And, uh, and uh, they came to actually visit me at, at Millbrook at one point. I'll tell you that story. And so I, my wife at that time and I, and I had two young children, um, my son, uh, who was, I think, maybe uh, three years old, and my daughter, Rachel, five years old. Uh, they're now in their mid-50s. And uh, they, uh, they, we, we packed a, a Ford station wagon and, and left Cambridge and moved to uh, Millbrook, New York, you know, upstate New York. And, uh, and we had a couple of bedrooms there, and, you know, we were living there with lots of other people. Uh, and, and I proceeded to start my life there. And uh, so one day, uh, my, as I said earlier, my parents were... were fearful of what I, the decision I had made, and so they wanted to come and see me, and they, they weren't hesitant to visit Millbrook at all. In fact, my father, having had been a scholar, you know, and a researcher, uh, became a subscriber to the Psychedelic Review, which I was editing, and he was very proud, <laughs> he was proud of me as, as an editor of, you know, this magazine. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he had, you know, he had, he had a collection at home in, in his home in Milwaukee of, you know, 
we we published it for about three or four years, I think. He had them all, he had all the editions there. And so he came and, and Tim was very generous and very kind and, and very loving and showed them around. And, he, you know, he, Tim, could, Tim could be the perfect host and gentleman on, at one moment and the next moment be the most irascible, unpredictable, nasty, uh, you know, short-tempered Irish drunk, you know. And you never, you didn't know who would show up moment to moment, you know. But he also was very traditional in a way, you know, having been raised in the Catholic and uh, in certain kind of mannerisms and aspects of, of his childhood. So he, so he, he played the role perfectly there. And uh, my dad and mom really liked him, my dad in particular. Uh, my mom wasn't so sure. She, she's a, you know, the... Double Pisces, and she had a good, a more refined intuition than my father, who was a Sagittarian, you know, adventurer. Uh, but they ended up driving in a uh, driving, they were driving back to New York to catch a plane to go back to Milwaukee. And Tim asked if they could hitch, he could hitch a ride with them if they could drop him off at Sing Sing uh, because he had a friend who was in prison there he wanted to visit. So they actually did a slight detour, took him to the Sing Sing prison and then went on their way. So, and my father would, would talk about this years later of meeting Tim under those circumstances, you know, it was, it was part of his, uh, <laughs> his repertoire of stories, you know, as is mine. So. Um, so that was the uh, parents' visit to Millbrook. But what happened there was I, I, uh, I was there for the summer, and I was planning to live there. And I had one of my first uh, lucid dream experiences uh, where I, I, the dream uh, was revealing its intent and content in real time as opposed to being kind of a union symbolic and you know, post-dream analysis, I was awake in the dream, mm -hmm. and and I and I knew what the dream meant as I was having it. It was literally informing me, moment to moment. And I, my dream was I was in this lead-lined chamber, with this gigantic flywheel, like a ship's wheel, with a big gauge in front of me. And the the name of the game in this chamber was to let in cosmic radiation by opening the cranking open the wheel and redlining the gauge. <laughs> and, uh, and I realized that's what I'm doing with my life right now. This, this dream I'm having, I, I knew it as I was dreaming, this was like a, a, a visceral, literal manifestation of what it was, what I was, how I was conducting my life at that moment. And I realized I had to leave because I was really playing a suicidal game, you know. redlining. Yeah. And the game was to stay mm -hmm. as close to the red line without, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> overdosing or whatever. Right? So I, I left, and, I, and so we packed the wagon and went, drove back. God, you know, my wife, God bless her, was all loving and supportive. We m moved back to uh, the Boston area. I... I I took an interim job uh, working on the development of a uh, uh, of a device to uh, a sonar device for blind people that would be embedded in a cane that would give them feedback on objects. You know, using early sonar experiment, 
This was in a cane. This was at the, mm -hmm. at the uh, in in Newton at the Perkins School for the Blind. So I, I designed and conducted a research. I was there for a couple of years running that research, and then I was given another teaching position at Boston College. So I resumed my academic career, and I kind of, you know, I landed on my feet, and and I was able to support my family and get back, and then I began to study. Uh, I began to practice uh, con coaching and consulting work with different organizations and individuals, which I continue to do to this day. So I, kind of reass I landed on my feet, reassumed my career, and continued, uh, you know, living my life that way. But there are a lot of other incidents and stories which I'm happy to describe. For example, uh, going to Mexico for the first time with Tim Dezihuataneo to set up our community air and what happened there with the Federales and the whole experiment there, which fell apart. Uh, there's another story relating to uh, that the next year where uh, a friend of mine who lives in Boulder here and from that era who I've known since childhood, actually, uh, he and I uh, uh, <clears throat> were commissioned to go by Tim and Dick to go as, as a scout party to Dominica, this uh, island this black sand island, which is, has one of the, at that time, and I don't know if it still is the case, but had one, one of the last, if not the only remaining Carib Indian reservations, the original Carib Indian reservations there on this island, which was like a, a scene out of a Conrad novel. You know, it was like a volcano and black sand and amazingly thick, rich jungle. And so we landed there as a beachhead to see if we could form an intentional community, a psychedelic community there. And there's a whole story about that, running into a, the, the guy there who, who uh, had, been, had been American there, who had been living there, forming his own society and wanted to join with us. He had a, a society, society called Carista, it was like a free love society, utopian free love society. So he said he would help us adapt and, and he knew people there and he had been a national hero there on the island because he had rushed into a burning building the year before and rescued a few nuns. Uh, and so he became a national celebrity there and, and everyone was treating him like royalty and so he was really well connected. So through, through his auspices, we landed there and we began talking to people and setting in motion uh, for Tim and Dick and, and Ralph and the rest of them to come a month later, once we had kind of cleared the ground, so to speak. But, but it turned out that we discovered that this guy actually had been leading uh, simultaneously a political revolt. Uh, They're uh, working with some, uh, some revolutionary leaders in the island who uh, were... Uh, really wanted to overthrow the colonialist British government that ran the island. This was the end of the British colonial empire, basically. This, I mean, the end of it in the sense, this was the furthest outpost, right? So the, the British civil service, they were living there, were all alcoholics. They were like, you know, ruddy-faced and drunk half the day or sleeping, and it was hardly anything for them to do in this outpost, right, at the end of the world, in this little poor island in the Caribbean. The last remnant of, you know, the English Empire. And so somehow Interval got involved and there was some reporting that we had landed there and, uh, and we were working with this guy, who I mentioned, the Carista guy, 
And the, the powers that be there, uh, the colonial powers, they assumed that we were in cahoots with this guy to create a revolution using the psychedelics as a, as a kind of dropping him into the you know, water supply kind of idea, you know. And that was the first thing from our, you know, we had no conception of that at all. But this whole paranoid scenario developed there, and suddenly we were caught up in a revolution. And, uh, and so that involved Interpol and a lot of policing and, and you know, and, and we, we left that island, we were deported from that island in a hurry, basically, you know. And we went to Antigua to, because we were offered another base there and that was a whole other story. Uh, somewhat similar, somewhat different, but a whole other story. We, we ended up on a place, on a spit, uh, where there had been a former World War II Navy base. Uh, the remnants of it. it had been eaten away by erosion and sandstorms and hurricanes, you know, but there was just a, a few structures left on that place. So we ended up staying there, exposed to all the elements, you know, and, and trying to figure out what to do next. And uh, one of our team at that point uh, <clears throat> uh, had, a, had a really bad trip. And, uh, and the first thing we knew, this guy Frank was standing he was a very tall guy. He was about like 6'4", wiry, strong. He was standing at, at the door and like a Da Vinci's figure, you know, with his arms outstretched, blocking the door. And we, we couldn't figure out if he was blocking us from leaving or blocking people from coming. It, it wasn't clear at the moment. But uh, he, he was, he wouldn't speak to us. He, he was ferocious. He was like some kind of ferocious deity. And, uh, and we were trying to talk to him and cajole and figure out what was going on to try to help him. Suddenly he bolts and leaves, you know, and he's gone. And, and we don't know what happened. And we're trying to figure out what happens to him. Another character emerges on the scene who is a Hungarian psychiatrist, also with a monocle and a bald head, <laughs> who is... Uh, noted and celebrated throughout the Caribbean for his work on, on doing uh, lobotomies throughout the Caribbean. He is like Mr. Lobotomy. And he was a, he's awarded all these prizes from these medical societies and governments in the different Caribbean nations for his work on, on the traveling lobotomist, you know, have lobotomy, will travel kind of, you know. So he ends up we end up figuring that this guy has, has that fr our friend, fr our guy Frank, has ended up in this guy's clutches and somehow that he's going to get lobotomized by this, this guy who we believed was an ex-Nazi who was hiding out, you know, because there were a few Nazis hiding out in the Caribbean, mostly in Argentina, but in Ar a few in, Argen in, in the Caribbean too. Uh, so we go, finally we find out that he's been captured by this guy and he's been put into this mental hospital, which is a stockade in the jungle in, in Antigua. And so we go there and it's literally made of, of you know, of chicken wire and, and framing. It's like a really primitive place. And he's in a cage with this old man there with a long white beard who's psychotic, who's just kind of mumbling and, you know, kind of gazing at the sky, pretty harmless. And Frank had sobered up at that point pretty, <laughs> pretty and Frank is, is wondering, what the hell have I gotten into, you know? So we see him there in this cage, literally his cage. So we are, we're able to get him out 
and we brought him back to the uh, you know to where we were staying, and then shortly after that we also were deported. We had to leave basically because of all the scandal and everything that was happening there. But there were a lot of you know adventures. <laughs> so we gave up on the idea of finding another country at that point that would host our work and support. You know, and the, although the second year, the next year, Tim went back to Mexico. I didn't join at that trip. And, and that's when the federales came in and busted, and there were a lot of crazy things that happened there. Can you talk more about the, your experience in Mexico? Because I think it's a part of the story that's not as well known mm-hmm. um, with the, the experiments. Well, I, again, I was a graduate student, you know. I was married. Uh, my, uh, my son was not born. My daughter was, was, was uh, not an infant, but she was a little girl, a tiny little girl. And uh, she, we brought her. Uh, <clears throat> we lived in a hotel uh, that in uh, Zihuatanejo. I don't know if people have been to Zihuatanejo, but it's a ver- have you ever been there? It's a very jungle place and beautiful bay, incredible bay, a pristine place. Uh, uh, it was undiscovered at that point. It was where people who you know were tiring of Acapulco, and a lot of people who were tiring of that very early would go there because it, it wasn't well known. And this, this hotel, I forgot the name of it, uh, was on a hill, and there was a, 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 a I forgot the technical word, a, a vehicle like that would, uh, like a, a chairlift that would basically, like a ski, ski lift, you know, that would kind of go up the hill to drop you off at your, at your apartment, right, or your room. So we were up on the hill overlooking this bay, and, and again, we, we were taking psychedelics almost daily there. And the place was very fecund and very rich, and plants would grow. You know, you'd cut a plant down, and overnight it would grow an inch. You know, it was so so rich there. And so one evening, I found a scorpion in my daughter's crib. Basically, you know, it's like <laughs> it gave us pause. You know, uh, so I don't remember too much about that, uh, other than that you know we were like tripping like daily there. You know, and really. We started experimenting with, with seeing what tripping daily would, would do, basically. You know, and of course, as you know, there, you, you build up tolerances, and so you'd have to increase the dosage. Uh, so, uh, but the, the setting there was so powerful, so you know, tropical and rich, and it was in the state, the Mexican state of Guerrero, which was a big bandit state, maybe it still is in Mexico. But a lot of violence there, you know, outside of the, the tropical resort where we were staying. But it was a major center for, uh, for growing marijuana uh, and other drugs. And, and so you had to be really careful driving, you know, uh, there was a, f- I believe that there was a small airport there, but only a flight maybe once a week, uh, a shuttle flight from another place. You know, it wasn't a direct flight from Mexico City. I think you had to go through somewhere else. So it was hard to get to, and we mostly kind of drove there, you you know, jungle roads. It was a really inaccessible place. But once you got there, it was, like, gorgeous, you know, really beautiful. Uh, Then years later, it became became well-known. Zihuatanejo was a a resort, destination resort, you know, but that was really early on. Uh, And as I said, the second year, I I didn't, I, I wasn't part of the, that experience. Second year, I was starting to burn out a little bit from, and you know, it was, again, this was before my Milberg experience, which I talked about earlier, but I was beginning to get a sense that, that uh, this was probably not a way to live. Uh, 
And, and to be honest, you know, Millbrook was not a place that was good for children. Uh, you know, there was, there's a certain amount of narcissism associated with the work we did, uh, I would say, to be fair, you know, uh, you know, we were, we had the self-image of being explorers and we were, and we were like opening up, you know, worlds. Uh, but there could be a kind of, uh, I use the word narcissism, a, a certain preoccupation with our own vision, you know, that wasn't the best necessarily for, for raising children. You need a lot of support and the children were a lot, really ignored a lot there. Uh, they weren't abused. There was nothing like that, but they, it wasn't the best place. And, uh, Tim had, you know, his daughter who later committed suicide and his son, Jack, for whom he became estranged later. And uh, the good part of that was that, that Ramdas or Richard became like a surrogate mom, basically, to both of his, Tim's children. And uh, the archetype that they played, and I talked about this in a, autobiography, in a biography of Tim that was written years later by someone who interviewed me, was... Richard played the mom, and, and Tim played the Irish father. Richard was the Jewish mother, and he was the Irish father, and their, their fraught relationship, you know, over the years, because Dick, Richard Ramdas was the responsible adult, basically. He was taking care of raising the money and making sure people were fed and clothed and the logistics were working, and he was super responsible. And Tim was, you know, the madcap Irish explorer, right? Just breaking through boundaries and, you know, and, and this is the next thing we're going to do. And, and it, it worked well for many, many years. And then it, it's just stopped working for the two of them. And they began to split, you know. And that happened <clears throat> shortly after uh, they, uh, they went to India. So Richard's experience in India where he became Ramdas through Neil Karoli Baba, and you know, and that whole part of his life began there when he gave a couple of acid tabs to Neil Karoli Baba, and who, is, who looked at him and said, <laughs> "Oh," <laughs> so, or something like that, you know, and uh, and Tim, who went with uh, his bride uh, Nina von Schlaeger, who was Nina Thurman's mom. Uh, married later Bob Thurman, who we knew as an undergraduate student at Harvard, who was kind of on the periphery of what we were doing at that time, along with Andy Weil and uh, Andrew Weil and some other people. But Bob was wonderful. He uh, he was a madcap character f from the time of his youth. I think he grew up in a wealthy family in New York, and uh, he was always experimenting and playing around. He lost his eye in some kind of madcap accident he had, you know. When he was young, but he was he was really interested in the work. He was good friends with another Harvard undergraduate there uh, who was working with us, and uh, and of course then again, as I said earlier, that blew up, you know. But um, a lot of characters, a lot of stories. Uh, I've shared a few of them with you today, you know, and I could probably share a few more if you're interested. But. <laughs> And I would be curious what it was like to watch the evolution, because you started in on this when the only people knew about psychedelics were as a small group of academics and mm -hmm. the Beats, yep. and not all of them. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of it, it was notorious. It was on every news magazine in America. Yep. What was it like to watch it go from unknown to known in all of these different ways? Well, we were we were bemused in part by that, you know, kind of 
participant observers, knowing that we were responsible for some of that. Not all of that, because there was a whole merry prankster thing on the West Coast, which is a whole other story when they came to visit Millbrook, you know. But uh, so there was this, this coastal stuff going on. As you mentioned, you know, the, uh, the early beatniks who were interested, who had been reading early accounts of, of, uh, of poets and, and, and artists, you know, were experimenting with mescaline and similar substances in Paris in, in the 30s. Because this isn't new, you know, this is universal. It, it's episodic, it's cyclic. You know, we're experiencing that now, a renaissance of that happening again. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times last week. Did you see the piece on psychedelic guides? It's a major piece, major piece on that, actually. Uh, uh, so, so we're witnessing a resurgence of that. But at the, to answer your question, we, we were so into our, the vision and mission of what we were doing and the impact we were having, the impact on our lives, the impact on other people, uh, kind of the opening of the heart, the opening of the mind, uh, reading a lot of literature that connected to spiritual awakenings, uh, including the Gurdjieff work, which I said I would talk about, which I will. And uh, so I, in retrospect, as you're asking me the question, I think back about how we kind of, did we see our place in history? Did we have any sense of our role? I think we did. I think we had a, a sense that we were like on the bleeding edge of, <laughs> of of change. Remember, this is Nixon, right? This is like big time. You know, people tend to forget uh, the, with the Trump era, uh, the, the, some of the echoes of the Nixon era, which in some some ways were were even worse, actually. You know, uh, some ways. The outcome yet remains to be seen how that's going to turn out. But uh, uh, so it's hard, you know, when you're in the middle of something to get a sense of, 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 of your role or place in the larger picture. Uh, it takes some years historically, I think, to have enough, enough uh, of a back view through the back rear view mirror, I guess, right? Or where you can reflect a bit on that and, and try, to, try to be honest about it too and not, and you know, I mean, there. With with regard to that, you know, one of the one of the co current complaints uh, about Tim is that he kind of ruined it for everybody for 30 years, and you know that his his behavior set us back. We could have done so much more. There's a measure of truth in that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I at one point, a la the Gurdjieff story, because it relates to this. Uh, Ralph had, uh, we had been reading a lot, and we ran across Uspensky's In Search of the Miraculous, which is a kind of the introduction to the Gurdjieff work. And uh, Uspensky quotes Gurdjieff in that book, uh, talking about certain substances that can be, people can take that can help them to wake up, to realize you know, the mechanicality of their, and the robotic nature of their social conditioning. And so Ralph discovered this teacher in New York City named Willem Nyland, who had worked with Gurdjieff uh, yeah, when he was a young man in the 30s and then a long interview uh, interlude between the, in the, during the Second World War and then rejoined Gurdjieff for a few years afterwards. Had been a senior teacher in the Gurdjieff work, had been a member of the Gurdjieff Foundation. So he discovered him and, and we discovered he was giving group meetings in New York 
Uh, I also discovered he would come in to Boston once a month. He had a group in Boston. So I joined that work. And for the next 12 years, I was deeply involved with him and the group in New York and Boston. And at one point, uh, I visited him, a friend of mine, who later went on, Alan Cohn, who later went on to become a uh, figure in the Reagan administration around just say no to drugs campaign. He actually created that. It's <laughs> another interesting story, right? Because Alan had been like deeply involved and then, then, then kind of did a complete like 360, you know, or 180 and uh, became an you know, avid anti-psychedelic guy. Uh, and became a clinical psychologist and was responsible for drug rehab and that stuff in New York. And was the just say no to drugs was actually his motto that, that Nancy Reagan adopted. So uh, a lot of backstories here that people don't know about, you know, including, uh, you know, uh, when Tim got busted at, at, at Millbrook, uh, Gord, G. Gordon Liddy was, led the team that busted Tim. And later they became friends because they were doing time together in jail you know <laughs> <laughs> the funny part of that story is their handprints are in the concrete in front of boulder theater just a mile from here really i yeah, didn't can, know that you can see both of their handprints because they were the they afterwards they did a tour around uh -huh. the country you yeah. can see in tim's uh newspaper clippings and they were great together they liked they, each other yeah the arch the arch villains of yeah. either side they play, they did hard time together uh -huh. solitary big time you know because uh, liddy had led the raid on Millbrook, which brought him, you know, with like a Zapata gun belts and, you know, 50 sheriffs and, you know, searchlights. And it was a whole big drama that they did. I wasn't there when it happened. But he, as a result of that, he came to the attention of the Nixon administration mm -hmm. and they promoted him uh, to the head of the office of uh, the drug enforcement, the DEA or version of the DEA. And one of the first things they did, a la Trump, is they shut the border down in Tijuana for like 48 hours or whatever it was. And it caused an international rift between the State Department and Mexico. And because, you know, there's so much commerce that happens there, it was like a big deal. But they were like strip searching people at the border for drugs. You know, it was a whole calamity. And it was a, it was like a, you know, a political calamity, you know, that that came out of the fact that Liddy was actually appointed and given this position in the Justice Department. So then, at, when the when Watergate happened and and he was implicated in all of that and he was convicted, he and Tim met in prison. I, I forgot in California which prison it was, and uh, they were doing hard time. And over the course of a couple of years, they they kind of developed a level of respect for each other that cons will often do who are doing similar hard time. You know, they're completely different ideologies. And then they went on tour and they would entertain people with their, you know, their their, racon, their repartee, so to speak, you know, and when they would do their public. I didn't know that they did, they, they did it in Boulder and that their handprints were on like, like, like Hollywood star, right kind of thing. Yeah, and some of their performances are on YouTube if anybody wants to yeah, listen to yeah, them. Yeah. Step back in time. Yeah. So um, anyway, coming back to the Gurdjieff work, so Nyland, Mr. Nyland knew that of my background, you know, because uh, we were pretty transparent and he was super conscious. And um, so one thing led to another, and he said to me one day, I said, he said, I would like to meet Tim. I'd like to talk with him. 
He said, what you guys are doing there is really important, but you're fucking it up. He didn't say that that way, but, but he, he said, you're, you're ruining what could be a very, very important piece of research on the use of these substances for mental health and a number of other areas. It was very early. He, he knew that. And so I talked to Tim, and he agreed. And so we had a meeting. Uh, <clears throat> Nylon came up from New York City with a group of his students, and we met in, in, on the grounds of the uh, Dietrich estate, you know, in this sumptuous living room in this building and <clears throat> in this home. And uh, they proceeded to dialogue. And Nylon spoke to Tim and, and again reiterated his point that this was research was really important, uh, that, that he, what he needed to do was to create a scientific organization to house the work, uh, that, uh, <clears throat> that the, this, 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 this vision really was uh, needed to be done, basically, it needed to be implemented. But Tim wouldn't listen to it. At that point, Tim, you know, again, he had this very strong, sometimes impulsive aspect, uh, this, uh, this kind of self-image of the visionary, you know. You got to understand that Tim is like a black Irishman. He comes from the Brendan Bahan school of black poetry and, you know, and kind of, it's like a fuck you to any authority, left, right, or center. It doesn't make any difference to him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're exercising authority, you don't get much mileage with him. And this comes out of his early days at West Point, the story about how he, you know, he violated the West Point canon and was put on suspension for a year, a silent treatment, and lasted the whole year because he smuggled a woman into his room or something. And, you know, and I don't know, it was what the actual, this is all in his biography, an autobiography. But uh, they, they didn't kick him out. They put him on suspension. The, the, the punishment was that nobody could speak to him for a year. He lasted the year. The day before a sentence was over, he quit. So he stayed the whole year and then did a major fuck you by, by staying the whole year and leaving. That was Tim. That was like in a, in a nutshell, really. You know, he would, that's how he... So he, uh, he liked Nyland. He respected Nyland, but his vision was to transform society. The, playing the game of science was he was beyond that at that point in his own mind. So, uh, so that was the end of that. And but, Nyland shared with me that he, he admired Tim. He liked him. He liked the re the rebel in him. He liked the fact that he was that he was uh, you know pushing the boundaries of social convention and social you know kind of social conditioning, but. Uh, he felt that, that, that what we're doing was potentially so important that it needed to be given safer, safer harbor through a different vehicle, which is essentially what MAPS has now been doing for a bunch of years. They really took that and that idea and, and, and have acculturated, institutionalized it in a form that's made it possible now for important research to actually happen and, and to prove the efficacy of these substances in many different ways. So I'm finding this really interesting at this stage of my life. I'm 82. Uh, I'll be 82 next month. And uh, I'm still vertical and, as you can see, fairly alert. Uh, and, and to me, it's, it's like it's watching the wheel turn again now as, as we're coming around the second iteration of, of psychedelics. And I'm, I'm curious. I'm interested, actually, in seeing if there's something I might be able to 
do in this area. I, I, have a, I don't have a strong need for it, uh, but I'm, I'm interested uh, in kind of going back into, not so much into the work on trauma and so on. I'm more interested in some aspects of, of creativity and other aspects of that, you know, uh, and also around political leadership and things like that. Uh, if you look at the history of, of breakthroughs in science, the paradigm shifts all come from, from a deep experience of consciousness. The, the next 20 years are mopping up operations where people do testing and so on, you know, but the, the real breakthroughs, whether they're Newton or Einstein or Bohm or, or Leary or what have you, they come through these transformational experiences. Uh, and, uh, and we know, for example, uh, the discovery of DNA came from that. There are a number of other breakthroughs that have happened. Uh, Steve Jobs was very influenced by his exposure to acid and his correspondence with Hoffman and, 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 the, and the Zen experiences and the kind of minimalist Japanese culture which impacted his, his design sensibilities. So I'm interested, you know, in if, when, if and when the time is right, if I'm still mobile and alive, I would love to explore an opportunity if one came up where we could, in the right circumstances, could, could do that some research in that area again, you know, it would be interesting. And it would make a lot of sense. It's some of the most important of the early work that happened that hasn't been replicated very well mm -hmm. is the work into creativity. And in some ways, it's so obvious. Um, but another, it really needs some scientific rigor to make yes. people believe. Yes. And also, I would say, revisiting the work on, on, on recidivism. And, on, and now there's a new prison reform initiative starting. There might be a window to be able to re-explore that. I understand there's one researcher in New York, perhaps. I don't know where, and I don't remember exactly who was interested in that. The work that, that we did with Walter Penke, the psychiatrist uh, theologian on the Good Friday experiment. I was part of that, by the way. I didn't talk about that today. But, you know, I was, I joined in that experiment, which was pretty remarkable. And uh, Houston Smith, the famous theologian, was part of our team. He, he took LSD with Tim. Uh, you know, uh, Zaman Schachter, who lived here in Boulder for many years, who was a great uh, teacher of Jewish mysticism. Uh, I knew him way back when. Uh, in Cambridge, uh, I actually helped helped connect Tim and Zalman, and Zalman had his first psychedelic session in a Vedic ashram in Cohasset on the south shore of Boston with a, a student of, of Ramakrishna, a woman guru teacher there. Uh, and so here's this Irish, <laughs> this madcap Irishman, this Jewish mystic, and this Vedic Hindu teacher, uh, doing acid in the ashram, you know, and this is where Zaman had his experience of the, what's called in Jewish mysticism, the Shekhena, the uh, mystical feminine descending, right? He had, that ex he had that experience. He had spent years earlier in, in, in the New York Talmudic, uh, the New York, uh, uh, you know, Orthodox scene, basically, but this was the first time the, you know, he actually had the experience. So when I moved to Boulder years ago, and, and then, then I discovered he was, I think, yeah, he moved here first. I've been here about, you know, about 14 years. And so we reconnected. And he, was, he would always speak very publicly and, 
and, and with great praise about Tim and his own experiences. He didn't hide it. He was, he was very forthcoming about, about the role of psychedelics in his own development, you know. <laughs> and can you talk more about that history? Because a lot of people think about the Vedic tradition with psychedelics, but you know the Jews are still so involved with the entire scene. Yes. Um, it's the the drug world and the sex world both are just the people <laughs> are there uh, for some reason. And can you talk about how Jewish mysticism and those thoughts seem to play into this? I don't really know. Uh, you know, it's uh, maybe as a you know, as an ethnicity, as a race, as a color, I don't know what we would call us, but, you know, we have a, maybe a propensity for, for the, uh, for that. More than other people? I don't know. I don't know. But there certainly have been a lot of us involved in, you know, the Jews, the Hindus, and the psychedelics, and that, that continued, you know. Um, when I first, as I told the story earlier about coming to, to uh, the Harvard and meeting Tim, I had a background in philosophy. My parents were, were conventional uh, religious Jews, but had not very much around any kind of mystical orientation at all. Uh, I first got some glimpse of that early on through, through uh, you know, through marijuana, basically, through cannabis. And, and, and certainly, uh, when I discovered bebop, that was like, you know, that was sort of like a mystical transformation, you know. Uh, and I, I knew a lot of those players early on. I, when I, I spent, I didn't talk about this, but I spent 10 years in the music business, actually, along the way. So, <laughs> and uh, starting in, uh, in the early 70s through up to uh, uh, about 87, or 85, uh, it was about a 10, 11 year period, I, I ran a recording studio in Boston called Intermedia. And it was on Newberry Street, uh, right, you know, uh, right between Mass Avenue and Hereford Street, I think is the other one. It was right in the, you know, at that point it was also a high-end place in Boston. It was a recording studio that had been built by two people uh, way ahead of its time, was very, very advanced. They had, uh, it wasn't digital. We were still using two-inch Ampex analog tape, but we had like shoebox-sized Dolby noise reduction equipment there. You know, a wall of Dolby, which you now you now you can put on a you know <laughs> on a centimeter of, of electronics. So, and I was I was in that studio that day mixing a uh, recording of. Uh, I have background in audio production, by the way. So and audio visual production. So. Uh, I was mixing a recording of, of a Tim spoken voice album, uh, like an audio collage of Tim, which got released on Rhino Records years later. It's a, you know, it's a multi-track Tim reading stuff and voices and music. It's all blended, kind of a psychedelic audio collage, basically. So I discovered the studio was going out of business because uh, they they were they had built this very high-end studio at Bolt Bermick and Newman, which was this. Uh, at that time, uh, the highest level acoustic consulting firm in the country, based in Boston. And they built a floating floor in a beautiful studio right in on this wonderful street in, in, uh, in Boston. So I, I went back and we were taking our company public at that time. And uh, so we had some money and, 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 and I said, yeah, we ought to consider buying the studio. We can get it for nothing. And my colleagues, uh, Garrett Stern, who was the head of USCO, 
and you know about Gert Stern, that's a whole other wing of the story, which I haven't talked about. And we formed the company, Intermedia, based on the work that Gerd and, and his colleagues did in Woodstock, New York, because they later met Tim and us, and we did a series of shows in New York, Steppenwolf, and we did a series of psychedelic shows using Gerd's multi-image displays and kaleidoscopic imagery, and you know, people dropping acid and coming to the performances. And so that was a whole other piece of that. So Garrett and I and, and George Litwin, the guy who and I mentioned earlier, was part of our team who went to the Harvard Business School. We formed this business called Intermedia. And uh, so we bought the studio and I was put in charge of the studio because I had a background as a bebop drummer and as a musician and, and interested in music. And so I was the most qualified, so to speak, you know. <laughs> Not really qualified. So I had to learn the ropes pretty quickly. I, I brought in a guy who became well-known in Hollywood, in L.A. as a music producer. Uh, and uh, so we ended up running that, and I ended up doing uh, Aerosmith's first album in my studio. And they were like a, they were a, a street kids from, you know, from north, from south shore of Boston, basically. Uh, who uh, had a demo. They came in with a four-track demo, and uh, they wanted to make a deal. They had a, a drunken Irish manager who was, like, you know, really messing up. But I liked the music. And I, you know, I wasn't a rock and roller, but I, I, I saw the potential. I heard the potential in the music. So I arranged to get them a producer uh, from New York. It was an Englishman named Adrian Barber, uh, who I had met through my friend Michael Kamen, who was the founder of the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble. And, and led that group for years, and it went on to become a very prolific music writer for in Hollywood. He wrote, he wrote the m music for many famous films, and uh, he died at the age of 55 in London of a massive heart attack, you know, at the height of his career. But we would vacation together in the Caribbean and play music together, and he, wonderful guy. And uh, so I, I met Adrian through Michael, Adrian had produced a few of Cream's albums, was this maniac, Irish, you know, psychedelic <laughs> character. Uh, and he was the perfect person to, to uh, both, he was an engineer and a producer. So uh, they liked him and they came in and we, we produced the whole album, uh, the first album, which was produced for Columbia Re Records. And, and then they delivered the master to Columbia and they released the album. It didn't, people don't know this, it didn't do that well. So they, I, with my help, they fired, they, they fired the manager. They got another, they got New York representation of, of people who were real pros in music. And Columbia reconsidered and they released a single from the album, which was Dream On, which became a gigantic hit and launched their career. You know, and my son Michael, you know, was he was like a ten-year-old sweeping the floor of the studio and helping out, and you know, so it was it was an interesting period. I have photos from that period with uh, with my in my beatnik, you know, aura, and uh, so there were a lot of lot of music that came out of that. Uh, Bonnie Raitt's second album, Boston. Uh, a whole bunch of uh, jazz recordings that came out of the studio. We were at the center of the, of the so-called Boston music scene. In fact, there's a book that just came out a few months ago based on the lyrics of Van Morrison uh, tune that describes that whole history in Boston during, that, during the 60s, including my studio and the psychedelics and the prison and the, the uh, Good Friday experiment. 
uh, I forgot the lyric, the, the famous lyric from Van Morrison, uh, uh, one of his spiritual lyrics, you know, was in that, because he lived in, he came to Boston, lived there for a number of months during that period with, a, with different band members. So, so that's a whole other, you know, part of the story around the music business. And I spent 10 years in, in that business before I realized that that was also a potential blind alley. Too many late nights, too much cocaine, too much carrying on, you know. And I, I was trying to be a, a dad and, you know, and keep a family together, too. And it was, I was, a, you know, an anomaly. I was like a PhD from Harvard running a recording studio in Boston and working with rock and rollers. And you mentioned that you also got to meet the beats that you were reading about yeah. earlier. Yeah, well, uh, the second section or third section, I don't remember, was also with Tim where Alan Watts, Alan, well, Alan Watts, that's a whole other story. But Alan Ginsberg came to this session along with his lover, Peter Olofsky. And this was the famous night where they uh, decided to call Khrushchev and called off a Cold War. So, and I remember that incident that night where, where uh, this was that same house in Newton that I mentioned earlier. It had this big staircase in the center of the foyer where you walked in, you know, kind of classic design of mansions. At one point, like two or three in the morning, I don't know when it was, Peter and, and Alan walked down the stairs stark naked, their arm around each other, and announcing that they had just tried to call Khrushchev at the Kremlin, but they wouldn't put him through. <laughs> and they, you know, they wanted to call off the Cold War through the psychedelic, you know, through the psychedelic vision. So we, at that night, for them, there were other people. There, Aldous Huxley's son was there. There were a couple of New York models who were hooked on heroin. Uh, there were a, a number of other people. There were always these characters. Uh, you know, larger-than-life characters from fashion, from entertainment, from politics, from academia. It was just kind of circling through, you know, and joining our sessions. That was my second or third session that night. Frank Barron was there, I remember that, and Ralph. And uh, so that was another example of... <laughs> Alan Watts came and spent a semester at Harvard as a guest instructor at Tim's Invitation. And, you know, we, we joined with him in a number of sessions. He was a character. Tim always called him the uh, sports reporter of the spiritual scene. That was his, his kind of damning with, damning with faint praise kind of appellation for Alan, you know, who was a heavy drinker. People don't know this, actually. Alan was an alcoholic, straight-ahead alcoholic. And, um, but he was functioning. You know, he could function. But sometimes when he, when he was high on alcohol, he could be very abusive, as Tim could be sometimes, and didn't show up very well in long-term relationships, you know, marriages and things like that. Uh, but he was incredibly engaging and brilliant and funny and a raconteur, and, you know, you forgave him a lot for these other... <laughs> you know, idiosyncrasies because of just who he was, you know, he could show up. Then another character showed up early on that marked the transition from psilocybin to LSD. His name was Michael Hollingshead. He's a character from that era. The, maybe the character from that era. Yes, one of the major key. So one day he shows up in Cambridge with a suicide note that is delivered to Tim. I'm Michael Hollingshead. I'm from London. I turned on the Beatles. 
you know, I've gone through psychoanalysis with Anna Freud, blah, blah, blah. He gives a whole litany of, of his biography, and I'm desperate. And if I don't hear from you in the next 24 hours, I'm going to kill myself. So, of course, Tim reaches out to him. He has a mayonnaise jar full of acid, basically, that he brought from England. He's close friends with Huntington Hartford, who is a socialite in New York. There's a building named after him in Columbus Circle. It used to be the Huntington Hartford Museum, who uh, was procured young models from England. Michael's job was to procure women for Huntington Hartford. So it was like a whole scene. And uh, he shows up in Cambridge, and he introduces Tim to LSD, which is, you know, now another dimension, right? beyond uh, psilocybin. So within weeks, we're, all of us then have our first acid experience after about two years or so of, of psilocybin. And that opens up a whole other dimension. You know, That's when things got really wacky at that point because it, psilocybin, there was still a modicum of research and control and, and you know, experimentation and writing up accounts of, of experiments and things. Uh, when, when LSD came on, it was a whole other, <laughs> just blew the lid off, right? <laughs> and part of the problem was undergrads were starting to get their hands on these. Well, that was, a, that really was frowned on. where Richard got fired, basically, because of uh, an undergraduate who was the son of a famous diamond family in New York, one of the major diamond retailer families in New York. His father was also the, on the board of directors, of, it was called the Board of Overseas of Harvard, uh, this guy had a gay relationship with, with, uh, with uh, Richard as an undergraduate, uh, which at that time was also, you know, pretty far out, combined with psychedelics, because Richard had agreed not to give psychedelics to undergraduate. He violated that agreement on this instance. He wouldn't give psychedelics to Andrew Weil, which was the basis for Andrew's discontent and, and in his attack because uh, he felt excluded from, you know, uh, from that. But for this other young guy, he did. So uh, uh, this is the, the Winston family, Ronnie Winston, the Winston Diamond. You've probably heard of that family, right? So they're a famous New York wealthy family. So Ron Winston was the kid, and his father was on the Board of Overseas. And so the father went to, to uh, Edgar Pusey, or I may not have the first name. Pusey was the president of Harvard at the time. And, and, and that was the last straw. And so they fired Richard, and Tim just stopped showing up for work. <laughs> so they, he basically, I don't know if they ended up firing him or not, or his contract elapsed. He just stopped coming, you know. But, but it was Richard who had actually violated the agreement. And Andrew Weil, who blew up the story, basically, he was writing for the Harvard Crimson. So one day I'm sitting in, in uh, I just happened to be at the right spot. I was sitting in this coffee house in the middle of Harvard Square, and uh, I'm sitting next to a table where Andrew Weil is with a few of his buddies, and he's talking about doing a mescaline deal with them, and I'm overhearing it. And he doesn't know who I am, I know who he is. So I'm hearing this deal, and in the middle of while he's, he's reporting on the crimson around the violations of of you know Richard and so on, he's blowing the whistle on our work. He's doing his own drug deals on the side at the same time, right? So I went back to Tim and Dad. I said, "This is what this is who this guy is. This is what's happening." So that was the beginning of you know of a rupture that went on for the next thirty years. 
I think he and Richard had a, uh, a rapprochement years later when he visited Maui. Uh, Tim, at the end of the day, you know, always saw things in a more cosmic scheme. He just saw this as all just characters in this cosmic dance, you know, and he didn't, uh, I don't think he, he held Andrew person after, he did for a while, but after a while he just, you know, didn't care anymore. Richard held on to it for a long time. But so, so he was another character in this play, you know, many characters like a Strindberg production, you know, so, you know, who's in the audience, who's in the cast, or, you know, what's going on. So. Anyway, there you have it, <laughs> or most of it. <laughs> Gunther, I just want to say thank you so much for this great piece of history. It was really a pleasure to learn all of these insider uh, pieces of the puzzle. <laughs> My pleasure. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day. <laughs>